or maybe New Year's Eve, you know, right before the club, right? So had no interest. And this sort of thing is widespread in the book of Hebrews, and that's where we're going to be today in chapter 4. And what the author is doing, we don't know who the author is, but we do know that he's a preacher, um, and he's preaching and writing this letter to his congregation, specifically to those thinking about abandoning the faith. And they return, and they want to return back to Judaism. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. All over social media, you have these so-called pastors and Christians who are saying they're no longer Christians. Now, think about that. Why is that type of topic trending on social media and going on all around the world? See, the last few weeks, we learned about spiritual warfare. As believers, we are recognizing that the enemy's tactics are not new, but we should not sleep on them. God has not left us without spiritual weapons, like fighting through unity and fighting through fellowship. And this morning, I'm here to tell you the glue that makes unity and fellowship possible is the Word of God. And it's the Word of God through the Spirit of God that truly transforms the people of God. But sin has deceived many, family. Let me read you this story. It's a story about two young women who went on vacation in a foreign country, and they noticed a scraggly puppy who was squirming in the gutter, and it was struggling for its life. It was breathing heavily, shivering, and barely able to move. Now, the women moved with compassion. They rescued the pup and smuggled their new pet to the States and then tried to help it back to strength. But the pet refused to eat any food. And one of the women patted it, talked to it, cuddled it, and finally wrapped it in a small blanket and placed it beneath the covers on her bed to sleep beside her all through the night. She kept checking to make sure the puppy was okay. But in the morning, it was oozing mucus around his eyes and slight foaming at the mouth. And afraid that the pup might be sick, she rushed him to a nearby vet and returned home to await the word from the veterinarian. And of course, immediately, he called and insisted that the women tell him where they found this pet. And learning the truth, he informed the woman that they did not have a scraggly puppy after all, but it was actually a river rat infected with rabies. See, sin is just like that. It's deceptive, it's deadly, and it's not to be cuddled with. So sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion against God and his law. James 1.14 says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire And when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when that's fully grown, brings forth death. It's like the fisherman who has a lure that looks good to the fish, but as soon as he latches on, unknown to the fish, there's a hook waiting to snag him. The lure of sin has consequences for believers and unbelievers. For the believer, sin causes loss of fellowship with God. Sin causes loss of joy. Your walk is darkened. Your prayers are weakened. For the unbeliever, the consequences or wages of sin is death. And the Bible is very clear that it's appointed man to die once and after that to face the judgment. So it comes down to do we trust God? 
if God is God and he has spoken, then his words are not to be trifled with. Really at the root of all sin is the sin of unbelief. Jesus said in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So here's the big idea, and we're going to look at this passage here, is that the sin of unbelief is so deceitful that it can only be discerned by the word that exposes our heart to God whom we must give an account. Read that one more time. The sin of unbelief is so deceitful that it can only be discerned by the word that exposes our heart to God, whom we must give an account. Let us read Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 11, and we'll be going down to verse 13. Here's the reading of God's word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Amen. In this life, we are all enrolled in the school of spiritual warfare. You didn't sign up for it and you don't graduate from it. But there are a few lessons in this passage that we can learn from and help others along the way. So number one, learn to avoid the examples from the past. You see that in verse 11. Let us strive, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The therefore points to the previous passage and highlights the mistakes of the children of Israel. Number two, we want to learn to use the word as a weapon against our own heart. That's in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And lastly, number three, we want to learn to live in light of eternity. And that's verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So you have the past, the present, and future realities in the spiritual fight to consider. So let's look at the past. The passage starts here in verse 11 where it says, let us... In the context in which the author is writing, this is a corporate warning to the church, both to individuals whose hands are slipping and to those who are able to pull them up, to the babe in Christ, to the mature, and even to the cultural Christian. Like we learned last week, we should not be lone ranger Christians. The sheep that strays and remains isolated is the sheep that is targeted. So family, we have very real enemies. Satan who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. The world that opposes the things of God and the flesh which we fight daily to put to death. So our unity and our fellowship is not just a good idea, but it's vital to our survival. 
ARC, do not be tricked by the fog of war and suffer friendly fire. What I mean by that is when we fight and when the fight is raging and the battle is on, sometimes the lines are blurred and whether accidental or intentional, we can wound our own. We have enough enemies. May we be a church that is quick to reconcile with one another so that we may be a united front in this battle. But notice that the togetherness serves a purpose more than just survival. Together, they must strive to enter or to make every effort to enter into his rest. Now, this is an interesting phrase. This rest of God is ultimately eternal life through Christ Jesus. So we're not saying that you need to earn salvation. No, we rest in Christ's finished work. But just like the Israelites who left slavery in Egypt, they still had the number one, trust God by faith to fight off the enemies of the outside, on the outside, and fight the enemy of unbelief on the inside. And that is the warning that he's communicating to his people. You see that right there in verse 11, where the whole point of us striving or being diligent together is that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So what sort of disobedience is he recalling to their memory? We see in chapter three and four, by telling them to remember Psalm 95, which recounts their forefathers' desert disobedience and what led to a hardened heart. So if you look at Hebrews chapter three, verse seven through 11, he recounts Psalm 95 and it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is some response from God. Here's what happened. The children of Israel, after being freed from slavery, left Egypt on the way to the promised land. Although they left Egypt, an idolatrous nation, Egypt never left them. So what's being pointed out here is you can be religious and you can even have experiences and not know the Lord. In some ways, this is worse. They had seen God's work up close and personal, the parting of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, water from a rock, and yet went astray in their heart. In the end, the wrath of God was against them, and they never entered his rest. Their response of testing the Lord is what indicated a heart issue of rebellion and unbelief. So question. Do you evaluate your relationships with the Lord on experiences over obedience? Really check your heart. Even now, when things are good, is that only when you say God is good? Or do you feel like in some way I have a license to sin because the Lord didn't come through the way I thought he should? Just like the church the author is writing to will face persecution, trials, And he's saying to this Exodus generation that they are an example not to follow, especially during difficult times. So here's the perspective we need to remember. At the same time the enemy is tempting 
for you to sin and destroy your faith, God is building your faith through the testing of it. So the testing produces steadfastness and it must work its process to mature you. We see that in James chapter one. Now, where have you experienced trials, hardships, difficulties, and had this type of perspective? Are you tempted to go back to what's safe, to what's comfortable or sinful, or have you decided to trust God? The other example he's exhorting us to learn from is when Moses sent the spies to check out the land of Canaan. All came back from the land with the report that the land was flowing with milk and honey. Two came back believing God that the land was for the taking. That was Joshua and Caleb. But the other 10, it was like, I don't know. I heard what you said, God, but what I'm seeing and feeling right now, with these giants in the land, we don't want to do it. And the Lord spoke. He said, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? And in spite of all the signs that I've done among them, God promised that those 20 years and older, those of fighting age who grumbled against him, that none would enter his rest except Joshua and Caleb. And for 40 years, they suffered in the wilderness because of their faithlessness and unbelief. So the author of Hebrews is exhorting the people and saying that you too are in jeopardy of the same disobedience and hardened heart. So by way of application, the Christian life and specifically in spiritual warfare, we'll have wilderness experiences, sorrow and pain and temptation. And James reminded us that that's part of the maturing process. But the trials we experience also has a way of distinguishing if our profession of faith is true or not. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise, glory, and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. And Peter should know. You remember Peter when Jesus told him the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And then he gave Peter some spiritual insight. He told him about the tactics and the target of the enemy. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Our faith is the primary target of the enemy. Without it, it's impossible to please God. Oh, that our hearts are so prone to be deceived, family. May we be people who learn from the examples written in Scripture that they may serve as warnings. This is why we need the Word of God to discern all the mess, all the voices, all the sin, all the confusion. There's only one objective truth, and that's the Word of God. So that leads me to my second point. Learn to use the Word as a weapon on our own hearts. You see that in verse 12. And it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, 
and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So when they stopped listening, it was no wonder they stopped obeying. So he preached the word. And at four times in verses three, chapter three and chapter four, he references four times Psalms 95. And he says, today, when you hear his voice, harden not your heart. The emphasis is today. The same word was calling them back to faith that David spoke to his generation. And that was a thousand years after the Exodus. That same word the author of Hebrews spoke to remind his generations was 400 years after that generation. So this is the power of God's word that it spans throughout all generations. And unfortunately, the very weapon that they had in their disposal that they could use to fight unbelief and fear, they disregarded and their hearts were hardened. So when I was deployed to Afghanistan, rule number one, don't go anywhere without your weapon. But what good is your weapon if you're in a fight and you don't fire back? He was saying, don't neglect the weapon of the word of God. It's alive. It's constantly active and can pierce right down into the innermost part of your stony, hardened heart to see if your belief is real or not. The book that you're holding in your hand has power, family. All scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, are breathed out and inspired by God himself and is profitable for all aspects of the Christian life. This is what the active word is and what it does. It accomplishes what God intends for it to do. As Isaiah 55 says, the word goes out and doesn't return to him void, but it goes out and it accomplishes what it was sent out to do. The word of God, but the spirit of God and the life of the people of God puts God's power on display. This is the confidence that we have in the word. This is what the sharp and piercing word is and does. It cuts deeply to the very core of our being. But the purpose of the cutting is for not to harm us, but to heal us. You see, sin is like a cancer. If it's untreated, it becomes fatal. J.B. Lightfoot put it this way. He said, the sharp sword of God's word heals most completely where it wounds most deeply and gives life where they're only and gives life there only where first it was killed. Untreated, it's fatal. The word gets all down on the inside and discerns the thoughts and motivations of the heart. We may read it, but truth be told, it's reading us. It's like a mirror, and sometimes we don't like what we look like. But keep reading and applying God's truth, fam. Our aim is not to be deceived. Remembering the word, doing the word, continuing in the word, this is what changes us and counters self-deception. Like a mirror, the word of God will always show us the truth. And with that, we can then respond appropriately. So three appropriate responses to God's truth concerning our hearts, self-examination, prayers of confession and repentance, and trusting God's word of assurance.
So careful self-examination keeps us honest with ourselves and also with God. This is why every Sunday and during communion, we have a time of confession. When we have the opportunity to agree with the Lord about our sin, to repent of it and to receive forgiveness. Like we did today when we corporately prayed the prayer confession. Now, God's word is always good, but it's especially good when we are reminded of our assurance of forgiveness. So today we read from Joel chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, where it said, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. See, the enemy will try and whisper that it's too late, that you're going too far. That's a lie, family. People may say that, but God's grace is greater than our weaknesses. He says, turn to me. The whisper may be, I've tried this before. And God says, the day you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Go back to God again. And don't just tear your clothing, just outwardly going through the motions, but deal deeply with your heart as if for the first time. He promises that a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. And lastly, some may believe that God is done with. I want to remind you of God's character. That God doesn't just show mercy. He is merciful. He doesn't just show compassion. He is compassionate, slow to anger, and filled with unfailing love. So we learn to avoid mistakes from the past, how to use the word as a weapon on our own heart. And lastly, we learn to live in light of eternity. We see in verse 13, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Family, this world is not your home. We know that one day we will stand before God to give an account of deeds we have done in the body. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 says, Therefore, we should have as our ambition to please God, not just outwardly, but on the heart level as well. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. He invites us to draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace and help in our time of need. But you must make sure that he truly is your high priest. There's no group plans of salvation. It's not just enough to be a part of a church and around God's people. Even though we strive together, we must personally and individually give an account. Do you also notice the close connection between God and his word in verse 12 and 13? To be exposed to the scripture is to be examined by God himself. God is merciful, compassionate, a high priest who sympathizes and says draw near, but he's also judge. But for the Christian, we have nothing to fear. Every sin we have committed has been paid by Christ and we are forgiven. Grudem in his Christian Beliefs book states it this way. At the judgment for the believer, the fact that we will receive a reward for what we have done should spur us on to consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. 
for the unbeliever or the Christian in name only. This God is the one whom Psalms 139 says, sees all and knows all. Our thoughts from afar, before what we think reaches our tongue, he already knows it. We can fool people, but we cannot fool God. Even the darkness is like to him. If this living word has laid you bare today, that's the work of the spirit of God. Do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Again, God is a loving father, but he is also a holy judge to whom we give an account. We were all created in his image, created to have fellowship with him. But sin entered the world through our parents in the Garden of Eden. It's not just our deeds, but our very nature that is corrupt. We're dead in our sins and in our trespasses. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That's bad news because the fruits of our deeds are death. But the good news is the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Every wicked thought indeed Christ bore in his body at the cross on our behalf. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, was buried, and on the third day he rose. And today, for those who repent and believe, will have their sins forgiven and they can experience God's rest. Family, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but turn from sin and trust in the Savior. There's a few application points I'm going to leave with you. One, read, study, memorize, and meditate on God's word with new zeal. This word needs to be in your heart. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How can you obey if it's not in your heart? Now, here's where the transformation takes place. Number two, apply trust and obey God's word with new zeal. The whole point of the Bible studies and and, and different groups that are meeting is not to fill your head with knowledge, but it's about being transformed. Always study with the view of obedience. Number three, since we know that sin destroys us, Let us not persist in covering it up. If we are convicted, stop and confess to God. Remember, God knows every sinful thought you've ever had, and he still sent his son to bear the penalty for our sins. The sin of unbelief is so deceitful that it can only be discerned by the word, which exposes our heart to God in whom we must give an account. So one day, There'll be an end to this Christian journey. There'll be an end to the struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But in the meantime, let us strive together to enter that rest, really checking in with one another and encouraging one another in the word so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. 
God, you know what your people need. Um, and we trust your word, Father. Um, I pray for all of those who, who, who hear your word and, and desperately need you, Lord. Um, they would hear and obey. They would turn and repent. And that they would find new life and experience true rest. And may we be a church that strives together to enter that rest. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.